This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. Good morning and welcome to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and this is your Southern Remedy program. Sorry, a little tongue-tied this morning. Your Southern Remedy program where we discuss any type of question that's related to your health care needs. That might be a new medication, new symptom, new diagnosis, whatever the question is for yourself or maybe somebody else in your family. You might want to reach out with those questions to us right now. We are here for you. Or if you're not able to call this morning, we always welcome emails. You can reach out that way by emailing remedy at mpbonline.org. And we know that some people, sometimes your work schedules aren't quite uh, to the point where you can listen to the entirety of our programs. You can always uh, download those using your favorite podcasting app. Just search for Southern Remedy and you can listen at your leisure. Maybe catch up on something that you missed in the discussion. Uh, whatever you want to do, maybe go back and listen to a program again. And, uh, or maybe you'd like to invite other people to listen in on Southern Remedy. Uh, that's another way to sort of uh, check us out and uh, see if it's the program that you need. Hope everybody's having a great Wednesday morning. It is uh, sort of a Scottish fall feeling out there. I don't know. You know, like the sun is gone, which after the scorching heat of the summer, I'm not uh, necessarily a, a naysayer on that. But um, but we are getting some rain in certain areas of the state where we haven't gotten any in quite some time. I know it's been about four months at my house. It's sort of nice to have about a half inch in the last 24 hours to fall. Um, so it's a great respite um, for uh, everything that needs uh, rain. Think about, um, you know, if you think about the ground, particularly here in central Mississippi and in areas where we have that Yazoo clay, um, <clears throat> you might want to watch out because the more rain we get, thankfully it hasn't been a big, huge downpour, but just keep in mind all that baked clay, it doesn't soak up that water quickly, uh, particularly since it's been drying out all summer. So flash floods are possible if, um, you know, if we do get a big downpour. So just plan appropriately for that. And sometimes we forget, you know, I've had this little stray cat wander up to my house and is, uh, in the time that it's been born, it's never seen rain and is freaking out right now. Also remember if you're in a car, don't freak out when you see this rain and uh, just remember to be careful when you're driving through those puddles. Cause you may not know how deep that is, particularly if it's an area that has a big pothole in it. Also a possibility here in Mississippi. Let's go to Ann from West Tennessee. Good morning, Ann. Good morning, Dr. Jimmy. How are you? Good. How are you doing this morning? I am doing great since, um, actually, October, um, uh, like the day before Halloween, I was diagnosed by my doctor with a uh, bacterial infection. Uh-huh. I had never had, I'm, I'm um, 74 years old, almost 75. So she prescribed me, um, she gave me a, a kickstart, you know, um, injection, uh, 
and then steroid pack and antibiotics and cough medicine and sent me home. And I was just pretty much, for two weeks, I was just like pretty much horizontal. I couldn't get up to do anything except, you know, uh, go to the bathroom or, or get a drink or try to eat a little bit. So I am almost healed, I think. But what I'm concerned about is she said she was able, she ruled out, you know, COVID, flu, pneumonia, strep, all that stuff, which was great to rule those out. But she said the blood work is what documented that it was a bacterial infection as opposed to a viral. And so my particular question now is how do you document when this this infection is totally gone from your system? And the the reason I'm a little hyper-concerned is um, I'm having a significant dental procedure coming up where I have to take amoxicillin four days in advance and then um, keep taking it after the procedure and all that. So I don't want to, you know, complicate anything that's going well. I don't want to overreact, but I just don't know. I don't know what, what my concern should be at this point. Yeah. If that makes sense. Oh, yeah, definitely. And those are great questions. Um, and let's talk a little bit, sort of dive into that. I'm guessing that when she said bacterial infection, bacterial infection tells you what is causing the infection, right? So we can have infections in the body, and a lot of them we don't even know. Like, um, it's, it is unusual to not have, you know, any bacterial infection up into your, into your 70s. But you may have had something felt bad for a day because we are in contact with bacteria every day all over the place and um, I'm guessing this was like a, a sinusitis as the location or in your throat or did she say the the location yeah yeah the, um, what happened was I had like my whole um, my neck both sides I just felt like holding it because it was sore I had severe headaches I had chest pain and I was coughing and I felt like my chest needed to be bound or I was going to break a rib or something. The coughing would wake me up sometimes and I just had body aches all over. I didn't think I had a, oh, I had extreme pain in my left side by my waist Mm -hmm. off and on. And then um, I didn't think I had a fever at all because I didn't feel warm. But when I was at the doctor's, it was 101.8, and she gave me, um, you know, Tylenol or whatever immediately to bring that, to bust that out and everything. So that, and then I took that to help. So, yeah, it was kind of all in my head, my neck, my chest, my side, and just, and then I couldn't, I would shake and couldn't stop shaking because I'd be cold and then I'd be hot and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I don't uh- know if. Yeah, that, that gives me yeah. a, lot, a little bit more to go on there. So let me let me talk about that. So, um, you know, generally when you present with symptoms like that, there's two big categories of something that could be going on. <clears throat> One is that you could have an infection caused by a virus, and we can test for some of those. You mentioned some, things like COVID or uh, flu, particularly if it's seasonal. Um, we, can, we can test for those. That can help in the diagnosis. But we do have other viral infections that we don't really test routinely. Um, there are certain special situations where we might can be a little bit more specific with that. And they can. the problem sometimes is they can cause the exact same symptoms as a bacterial infection. 
A bacterial infection is a little bit different. So, you know, the virus causing the viral infection, the bacteria, those are things like streptococcus, uh, staphylococcus. There's a lot of others, particularly in the mouth region, that just live in there. And then if you have an opening or if you've got a little irritation, they certainly can move into the space. They tend to be um, in different locations, though, like a specific location. So, in you know, back to your question about sort of how, how do we, you know, differentiate between those two, to be honest, uh, there is no one particular test. Um, now, there are certain, certain bacteria that are not normal in certain spaces, but we always combine tests for those. Like if, you know, people will go in, they'll say, hey, the doctor tested me for uh, strep. So that's one of the streptococcal, uh, you know, t- uh, type A or, or B, or sorry, not B, A um, infections or bacteria. So they can do a little swab in the back of your throat. They can test for that. If it's positive, then they'll treat you. Right. But they, we always combine that with a physical exam and symptoms. So if I just went out and tested a hundred people off the street for, um, for strep, I would have some people that tested positive, but they're not infected with the bacteria. They are carriers, but they don't have an active infection going on. And there's no real need to treat those people without an infection. So we always have to combine the testing with what we call the clinical picture. So those are the symptoms and the things we see on exam. So your physician, your, your healthcare provider combined all those things together. And there are some things like the test, you know, if you do test positive for COVID or flu, then we would have a better understanding of that that was what was causing it. But the other thing, if you don't, you know, test positive for say strep, um, you know, there, there are cultures that we do depending on when or, or what location that infection is in. So, for instance, if it's a skin location, sometimes we can do cultures if it's an abscess. But there's other times that we just sort of play the odds and know what types of bacteria like to do to set up shop as infections in that area, like an upper respiratory infection or a, a, a tonsillar infection. And then we just sort of treat it based on the symptoms. Now, Got to, got to mention that about the blood count. So, so I, I think the blood test that they were uh, alluding to uh, is probably a CBC. So that's a complete blood count. So that gives us a little bit of information about the types of blood cells. And one in particular sort of helps a little bit add to that, that clinical scenario with looking at infections, and that's the white blood count. And within that white blood count that has the absolute number of white blood cells in the blood, but then it also has a breakdown of the different percentages of the types of white blood cells. So, for instance, we have neutrophils, and neutrophils, their sort of special job is going after bacteria. And then we have lymphocytes, and the lymphocytes, they don't typically go after bacteria. There are some, some weird bacteria that they go after, but it's mainly viruses. So sometimes if your white count is high on that test and there's more uh, neutrophils as a percentage of that high white blood count, then that might help, but it's not 100%. And then there's one other test that sometimes you can do as, as a blood culture, and that's sort of a gold, sort of the gold standard for infections in the bloodstream, where you actually take some blood, you put it on a petri dish, and you see what it grows out. And if it grows out, we typically we're not going to have uh, we're not going to have bacteria in our bloodstream. 
at any time, uh, as opposed to if you culture the throat or the skin. But I doubt that they did that because that does take about 72 hours to come back, um, 48 to 72 hours. So basically what they did is they took all that information, they put it together and said, okay, based on your clinical presentation, based on what we saw on physical exam, your symptoms, your fever, and the lab test or, um, or other tests that they did, most likely they thought it was a bacterial infection and treated you with that. Not going to hurt your upcoming um, dental procedure. And another question you ask is, how do we know when, when it's over? Well, the best test is not like an actual test most of the time, particularly for an infection like you have. It's the if you're getting better. So it's symptoms. So do you have fever anymore? Um, do you have, are, are you getting better with the symptoms of sore throat? You don't have to be completely absent from those symptoms, but is it getting better over time? But that shouldn't, you know, they're going to put you on the antibiotics for the dental procedure to make sure that anything in the mouth that they disturb during that dental procedure isn't spread in the bloodstream somewhere. So that's the reason for doing that is to try to quiet down that area. Um, but yeah, it should, should be fine. Yeah, and definitely going the right direction. And actually, my husband mentioned something. You know how you can have things that kind of mask what's going on? Because he said, you know, you have trouble with, um, you know, in the fall and the spring of the year, sometimes the stuff in the air, we live in a wooded area. And um, and so I'd gone down to the deck and with my boots the day before and disturbed some leaves and things like that and everything and picking up something that I've dropped. And then I was going to town it was so nice that I had the windows down and then I'm just breathing everything in the air you know and he said that could have kind of been a factor in there too but yeah. you know yeah it but, doesn't it wouldn't cause the fever but it certainly would have caused some of those other symptoms and sometimes you can have an allergic type response to things like that that you're stirring up in there certainly this summer you know without a lot of rain we had a lot of that blowing around and that can cause right. enough irritation in your upper airways or in your sinuses that then bacteria can sort of set up shop in that. So it can sometimes you can have both things going on at the same time or there can be a sequencing of it. And that's why, you know, we teach medical students that 90 plus percent of the time you don't need any test to make the diagnosis. So if you do a history and a physical exam and really ask those right questions in the physical exam, most of the time with any, we're talking across the board with anything, we can get to the diagnosis, the right, correct diagnosis 90% of the time without even drawing any blood or doing any tests. So a lot of people say, hey, we just need to get a bunch of tests on people. It's actually, you can, it's not as effective. So uh, you got to be that Sherlock Holmes as a physician to, to tease out all those small things. So I'm going to go to Barbara, who's been patiently waiting for a long time. Good morning, Barbara. Good morning. Uh, I'm calling about my liver enzymes has been up for the last two years. Uh-huh. And I had, to, I had to have blood work done every about three or four months because I take methotrexate. And uh, it's, they not been up all that much. He said it wasn't nothing to worry about. But I've been taking uh, the methotrexate for about 12 years, and it started this about two years ago. Yeah. And uh, they'd be up. Uh, so I just am wondering... You know, uh, why they're up and I, I take, uh, uh, some, uh, uh It's a generic for Xanax and uh-huh. I've had the COVID shots and things like that. Uh, is any of that 
with any of that causes it to go up. Yeah, liver enzymes that are up. So that's sort of a marker um, for how well the liver is doing its job, right? So there's different ways to look at that. We can look at the anatomy of it with um, something like an ultrasound or MRI. Um, but as far as how it's functioning, there is a, a lot of different tests we can look at. And there are two in particular. There's an ALT, and then there's an AST. Um, and most of the time when people say liver enzymes that are elevated, that's what they mean. But there's some other tests, too, to look at different parts of the liver system to make sure it's working like the total bilirubin or the indirect and the direct bilirubin um, levels of protein in your body because the liver has a significant role in maintaining protein levels and protein, both protein synthesis and making proteins and breaking it down. And then um, also the liver makes things like our clotting factors. So uh, we can check for, you know, sometimes my patients like, why did you check my clotting factors? I'm not having a clotting problem. It's like, well, I'm really, it's an indirect way of looking at liver function. So all of that, Really, you have to get sort of the big picture, and then you have to go back. We talked about being a detective a little bit earlier and see, okay, what is going on? Is there something else that could be contributing to this? You listed a couple of things, uh, particularly like the methotrexate. There's a lot of medications that we use um, that can affect the liver function, and that's probably why they initially checked it, I'm going to take a stab at that because that's something that we monitor from time to time to make sure that those liver enzymes are um, are not going up. If they're too high, that usually means the liver's having some problems with something. But uh, diet can affect it too. Some people have fatty liver disease, and that can cause some elevations in uh, liver enzymes. That's one of the, the most common forms of cirrhosis now. Um, certainly I'm not saying you're in this category, but for other patients, you know, alcohol is a big one that hits the liver. There are viruses that uh, can affect the liver too, like hepatitis viruses, like hepatitis B and C. And sometimes if you've gotten blood transfusions in the fa- in the past, uh, particularly in the seventies, uh, or earlier, uh, that can put you at risk for that. So sometimes, you know, he's talked about not checking a lot of labs, but in this case, they may want to check some other labs and maybe get some imaging studies if they haven't already to look and try to figure out what's causing that. So the only thing I heard that could have a significant impact on it uh, would be that methotrexate. Um, and even if you well, had that, done... That, go ahead. That is, why he, that is why he does that blood work every three to four months on count of me taking the methotrexate to gotcha. keep the liver checked, you know. Right, and, right. Uh, I just... And uh, I take the Tylenol, but I don't take them very. He told me I could take four a day because I'm on blood thinner and I can't take nothing else for pain. But yeah. I, I never did take one a day, but I quit taking one a day. Uh, I just take them occasionally now. Yeah, that uh, shouldn't that, that shouldn't cause a problem uh, most of the time. But um, another thing to consider too is autoimmune processes. So sometimes just out of the blue your body can start attacking itself and it'll attack the liver. And, um, and in some cases, if you don't get an answer with all the other things that we were talking about, sometimes a liver biopsy um, would be something that they may do to try to give you a diagnosis of that. But if, if the liver enzymes are somewhere around two and a half times the, the upper limit of normal, so in other words, whatever that upper limit on the labs that they're drawing, if it's two and a half times more than that, 
If it's somewhere around that range, most of the time you can just watch it and avoid other damage to the liver with avoiding, you know, some of the things that we know are going to affect it, um, either medications or other, you know, drinking alcohol, those kinds of things. But um, and, and keeping in mind that a lot of medications are metabolized by the liver. The liver is our biggest organ of big metabolism. So it breaks down stuff and it makes stuff. Um, it's like a big old factory. But it is very resilient. Like you can take out um, a large portion of the liver and it will regenerate itself. It's one of the most regenerative organs in our body. So I, that's what I would do. I'd ask a bunch of questions. If they say, hey, we just don't know right now, but the liver enzymes aren't going up any higher, then I would feel comfortable just checking it maybe every three to six months and just making sure that things aren't getting worse. Well, what kind of foods can do that to you? I mean, well, are they certain types? Not so foods aren't as big a deal, but depending on like if it is, I, I guess what I was talking about there is more of like if you do have fatty liver disease, which there is are a couple of tests. There's something called liver elastograph elastograph. I can't even say it. Sorry. So, so there's an ultrasound and then an MRI that can look at the liver to see if there is uh, increased fibrous tissue there um, and if there's increased fat. In it. And if that's the case, you might want to reduce the amount of fats in your diet. But really, there I mean, unless you're taking a lot of supplements, some supplements you have to watch out for, too. And it's best to, like, talk to your pharmacist and say, hey, you know, here's my list of medications and things. Is there anything I can't eat that would affect my liver? And there's been a little bit of, you know... Glutathione is one, uh, you know, that they've looked at, and it doesn't really show a lot of improvement, but it's not going to hurt you to take that for, like, liver health of of improving the liver function. Um, But just eating a healthy diet is probably the biggest thing that you can do to help protect it. I pretty well do that, and I don't drink or anything, and I I don't weigh about 118, 20 pounds, so I'm not, I don't know where it could be, you know, it could be fat, you know. Uh, yeah, and the, the, you it's, know, in, paper, it's interesting, like most people who have fatty liver disease are overweight or obese, but not everybody. Um, yeah. So, and the other thing, if you haven't seen a liver specialist, that would be our GI doctors. Um, you might want to reach out just for a consult just to say, hey, you know, can I see one of them, get a second opinion, and maybe, you know, maybe they can figure out sort of what's going on and causing it. Okay. All right, Sam. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering your questions about healthcare topics. Got some good calls so far, a lot of in-depth calls so far. Going to go to Marvin from Hattiesburg. Good morning, Marvin. Good morning, Doctor. Um, I just wanted to come in and kind of give a warning. Also, uh, I had a terrible experience recently mm-hmm. uh, and it was concerning a bacterial infection which uh, one of your callers has discussed in depth um, I had uh, the same symptoms she had but I, and I also had uh, weight loss anemia and fatigue and um, and this went on for several months and and the doctor did blood tests and also um, kind of pursued a possible uh, cancer cause, mm-hmm. um, which I went through many tests, many scans, many GI tests, uh, 
and and that all started about November of last year, and uh, and then in May, uh, what what the problem was was uh, streptococcus uh, bacterial infection of my blood. Mm-hmm. It was actually in my bloodstream, so it led to endocarditis. Mm. Um, so um, I was actually at a GI appointment on uh, May first of this year. And uh, my heart went into a fib, which uh, it had progressed to that point. Um, Thirteen days later, I had to have emergency surgery and have two heart valves replaced because the bacteria had destroyed my heart valves. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the warning is, if this goes undiagnosed, um, it can lead to life-threatening situations. Um, yeah, you're... And, and I, I just want people to be aware of that yeah you're absolutely right and i'm uh, sorry you had that experience marvin uh you know that is a complication that used to be incredibly common so rheumatic heart disease was one of the leading causes of of heart disease of valvular heart disease uh really up until the time of the you know 70s and 80s uh when we had more options with antibiotics but um but that is a, a is a serious complication, and uh, sometimes it can be caused by a defect in the valve itself, and then spurious bacteria that you know that get passed around in the bloodstream can sort of latch onto that as they pass through the heart. Or sometimes you can have bacteria that is untreated for a long period of time to do that. Now, strep is one of those that's interesting. Like some people have an immunologic response to strep that actually damages the the vest the uh, the valves in their heart. So if you don't treat the streptococcal infection appropriately with antibiotics, um, then you can have the complications you just mentioned, which and usually you named a couple of them, you know, persistent fevers, chills, weight loss, <clears throat> a murmur that it hasn't been there before and and We've talked a lot on this program about when things don't make sense, you back up and you sort of think more broadly and like, okay, what are we doing here? What are we dealing with? And also, you know, you mentioned blood cultures too. I mentioned those. Those aren't something that you would need every time. Like if I see a, you know, an eight-year-old, for instance, with a beefy red posterior oropharynx when I look in their mouth, they've got a fever to 102, 103, uh, they've got a sore throat. Um, most of the time I'm going to, I'm going to swab them for strep, but even if it's negative, I'm going to do a culture of it too, to sort of follow up, but I'm probably going to treat them with antibiotics just to be safe. Um, but we do have a lot of simple ways to treat that early on so that you don't have that complication. But the other, the other thing I think we can learn from this, and I thank Marvin for bringing this up is that when things don't make sense and they don't really fit and they go on, like most bacterial infections, we wouldn't expect that to go on, you know, more than two or three days or uh, treated, then you start to think about other things. Um, So, yeah, that's important. And I love it when patients, like, bring it to my attention. Hey, this isn't working. Uh, I'm still having fevers. I'm still feeling bad. I've you know got a rash that goes on with this because sometimes this can manifest as a rash or what what appears to be a rash. So you do have to think sort of outside the box on that to make sure that you're treating it appropriately. All right, thank you. Thank you for. Uh, Go ahead. I, I just wanted to 
uh, bring some awareness to that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank absolutely. And we talk a lot about, um, again, you know, I'm, I'm in the teaching business, have been for 20 plus years now, but um, teaching medical students and residents in training, uh, it's very important not to just what we get sort of shotgun mentality where you're like, oh, this is this is a strep, then we'll just treat it. Um, you really need to think about, okay, what are the five things or 10 things or maybe even 20 things that could be causing this? And then we do some confirmatory testing or physical exam to confirm that. And then we what we come up with most of the time is a likelihood. So we might be 90% certain that this is strep, streptococcal infection, then we can treat it appropriately. And we might choose an antibiotic that works uh, 90% of the time. But what about the 10% of the time that it doesn't? So making sure as a patient that you're like, and I usually I try to say this to my patients, like, hey, if you have any problems, any complications, you let me know. Um, and then we can sort of back up and, and do that. But don't feel like as a patient, I want to make sure all of you feel empowered to bring those kinds of issues up to your physician um, and don't feel bad about calling back if you do have a problem. And there may be some very valid reasons why I got a, a question about this yesterday about a certain test, why we would would and would not do a certain test. And there's probably a good reason for that. But, you know, we don't typically I don't explain completely everything that I do. I usually say things like, you know, we're going to do some lab work, looking at your kidney function, your electrolytes. But if, if there's a good reason why I, I'm doing a lab or not doing a lab, certainly if a patient has that question, I would, I would encourage them to bring that up with their physician because that is important in knowing that big picture. And again, I think we get we're sort of the misconception that there is one test for what is wrong with you. And if we just get that test done, that's going to give us the answer. And that just isn't so with medicine. That's, um, that's just not the case. And it is a little bit puzzling to me, like we were talking earlier about home improvement projects and things that are wrong in our houses. And, uh, you know, if you have a leak, you may think you know what that leak is from. But until you get an expert in there and start juking around and start digging around and they may say, oh, well, we thought it was this area that was leaking, but actually it's something totally different. So it can take a little bit of time and effort by somebody who's got the skills to do that. Um, and we certainly try to, you know, train that way. And the other thing is, you know, if it particularly when we start getting into some of the rarer things, it does take, take some time. And a physician who treats you for the most common thing first is not necessarily wrong. It's just you have to sort of go through that process to get to the correct answer. Now, hopefully we would do it quickly. We could do it accurately. But medicine has a lot of uncertainty to it. Uh, and even, again, with tests as they are, um, they may not have the specificity and the sensitivity to pick up on everything like that. So just something to think about as we talk about, you know, how do we approach different medical conditions and, um, and symptoms that you might have. You might want to uh, email us um, if you have a um, if you have a uh, question that you don't have the time to. Maybe your job sort of prohibits you from uh, calling in right now. You can 
reach us uh, at um, remedy at mpbonline.org. Uh, and again, you can check us out on the podcasting app, or if you want to go to the um, website on mpbonline.org, you can search for uh, archive programs there. They usually go up about, uh, I think, about 24 hours after their, their air. They're usually available, but... I like the podcast. Podcasts will give you stuff quick, um, so that may be the best way to do it. All right, we're going to go to David from Horn Lake. Good morning, David. Uh, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. I'll, I'll be 68 in a couple of months, and I'm noticing that I'm not as sharp as I used to be. And uh, my family has a real bad medical history of neurological diseases, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and multiple sclerosis. Now, my question to you is uh, a multiple-choice phase question. Number one, what is the standard test now for Alzheimer's? And number two, is there a preventative medication you can take if you're in a high-risk group? And number three, you see these advertisements for these genetic testing companies? Uh, can you pay the fee and have them screen and see if you've got Alzheimer defective gene? Or if you uh, can, is it, can you be tested and find uh, through genetics whether or not you're going to get Alzheimer's? Yeah, that's great. a mouthful. I'm sorry. No, no, that's great questions. They, they come up a good bit with uh, in my patients too. So let me take that. So you know. If we talk about the neurologic diseases that you mentioned, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and, and MS, um, they're all quite different in their um, in how they um, how they present in patients. Um, but let's just take the Alzheimer's because I think that's the, the the core of your questions right there. So, you know, Alzheimer's is one of the types of dementia. There are others. So everybody who has dementia or a loss of, of cognitive processing, thinking, memory, we tend to like focus on memory only, but it's also how we how we do processes and how we interact with other people. So some people's dementia might be manifest more of just a lack of social interaction that people are noticing. So you do have to keep in mind that. Every patient with dementia, though, does not have Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's is a is a type of dementia that is really common, unfortunately, and it has to do with the pathology of it. There is something called neurofibrous uh, 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 tangles, neurofibrillary tangles in the brain cells. They sort of wrap up. And they sort of short-circuit things. So if you think about the brain as a big old computer with a lot of wires going all over the place, that's the neurons. They have a protective sheath around them, and that's the the insulation so that those impulses can travel quicker. Um, You can have all kinds of stuff that's like in between and messy, and uh, it's like when you open up your computer and you find like there's lint everywhere in there, so it's just not working appropriately. But that's just one type. So there's other types, too. There's types that involve the blood vessels themselves. So sometimes that's called small vessel disease, and that can be associated with hypertension and uh, high cholesterol and diabetes. So there's lots of different things that can improve brain function. Now, back to your question about the test. Is there What's the testing available for Alzheimer's, particularly if you're a higher risk? So the, the biggest one is um, neurocognitive testing testing okay so there is a quick screen and people debate on which one's the best Uh, i like the mini mocha m-o-c-a test so that's 
one that your physician or maybe sometimes the nurse or a nurse practitioner would administer to you in the office. You can track that over time. And then again, marrying that with specific symptoms. Are you able to remember things throughout the day? Typically, all of us, and you know, we tend to forget more of the simple things like, where are my keys? I can't remember that person's name. Uh, it may take us a little bit of time to get there. But typically, if it just stops there, that's not really a symptom of dementia. Um, again, you have to do the, t- the cognitive testing to sort of tease all that out. There are bigger batteries of that. And, you know, at UMMC, we have something called the MIND Center, so the M-I-N-D. The MIND Center, really all their work is around brain functioning, which includes Alzheimer's-type dementia. So if I have a patient that uh, – or anybody, if they have a patient that they think – might can benefit from further testing or even some studies going on about how to prevent it. They have some great long-term studies that you might benefit as a patient being enrolled in those. So that is a resource to do more in-depth testing. But a screening test, which is not a blood test, uh, it's not like something that we can do like an MRI. Sometimes it may warrant getting an, an MRI, but it's actually a series of questions which test out how your brain is functioning in different areas. So that's the the most sensitive test that we can get. Um, As far as something to take to prevent Alzheimer's in high-risk patients, there are a couple of experimental medications that are being looked at with that. In other words, if you... Uh, you know, all of your family members, if they got Alzheimer's, particularly if it was early Alzheimer's, so early being, you know, below the age of 70, 65-ish, um, you know, they got Alzheimer's, dementia in their 50s or 60s, then, yeah, I would honestly, I would contact somewhere like the Mind Center to get that testing if I was that person. But there's not really anything that's like mainstream, take this, this will help prevent Alzheimer's uh, if you have that history. And then the final question about genetic testing that you see out there, and it's not just for Alzheimer's, it's a lot of stuff. You have to be careful with that. Um, It is not 100% sure. Now, there are a couple of specific um, genetic abnormalities or variants that increase your risk of Alzheimer's, but none of those are 100%. In other words, if you are, you know, you may test out positive for a couple of these variants and your background risk may be like 10 or 20% of a lifetime risk of getting Alzheimer's. And then if you have those genetic components, it might be 50%. So, um, you know, it may give you a, a uh, percentage uh, of what your chances are, but it's not 100% predictive. So I try to tell people the biggest thing, particularly if you have larger families and you have people who live older, that's the best predictor of your total risk of Alzheimer's. Like if you have everybody in your family, if they all got Alzheimer's at 65, then that is much, much better if you went out and got the genetic test because that is the what we call the phenotype. That's the expression of the disease in your family, and it's so much more predictive. Um, and then the things you can do to prevent it, you know, we – Eating a healthy diet that has a lot of fruits and vegetables, it's very good for brain health. We know this works really well 
processed foods, high salt foods and in your diet, those all contribute to decreased brain function. And certainly those people are much more likely to get small vessel disease and, uh, and, and particularly if it's associated with hypertension. If you do have hypertension, controlling it appropriately, a lot of people say, yeah, I'm comfortable with a blood pressure of 150 over 90. Um, that's not good enough for the risk reduction that you need to help prevent dementia as you get older. Same thing with diabetes. You want really tight control with those. So, yeah, that it would again, I think this that's been the theme of the program today. It's funny how you develop themes over time. So uh, I don't know if all y'all get together out there and call each other around the state and say, hey, let's call in about this. But uh, testing, you know, you have to you have to take that in total with the physical diagnosis uh, with with the history and then the physical diagnosis and then put those things together. And if there are tests for the disease, those can be helpful in confirming it. But almost never is it something that you can say, okay, 100% certainty this is what I have. We do have things like that, like Huntington's disease or Lou Gehrig's disease. So those can be much more specific. But when we talk about Alzheimer's, just not quite as helpful. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy with you this morning talking about all kinds of good stuff about healthcare, And uh, hopefully you have received something today that is important to you or somebody in your family. Um, and I know we only have a few more minutes left on this program, but, um, you know, I don't think I, I love hearing feedback. I was at a, a wedding uh, this weekend and got some feedback from a listener, long term listener. And, um, you know, just on the impact of the program. And that's good to hear. And it's not just me. I mean, I'm just sort of facilitate the discussion, but it's really about our callers calling in with different things, emailing in about any kind of, you know, healthcare question that they might have. And it's always something that we can generalize to the to the broader listening audience. So uh, thanks to everybody for doing that. Thank you for your support of the program, ba- uh, both in listening and contributing to that discussion, and then also uh, in your funding of that. So that's uh, that's a great opportunity to keep this program going through your support of MPB programs just like this. Um, you know, uh, we we mentioned a couple of other mental diagnoses or, or, you know, degenerative brain diagnoses. So MS is one of those too. Uh, that stands for multiple sclerosis. So there are sclerotic lesions on those neurons. Typically, uh, typically it would present a little bit earlier in age. And, uh, one of the most common presentations is loss of vision in a younger person, particularly if it's just in one eye. And uh, it's a lot different in, you know, how you diagnose that. So we do lean in that condition on um, on testing with uh, with MRI to look for the the, the sclerotic plaques in the brain um, that are sort of characteristic of that. And then another one was Parkinson's disease, which is really a movement disorder. But we now know that it is highly associated, particularly with advanced disease, with dementia uh, and with um, with uh, depression, of course, because it can be very depressing uh, to have this. It's treatable. There's a lot of great treatment and medications with Parkinson's. But um, keep in mind that that's one, too, that often presents with a, a shaking tremor. A lot of patients will come in and say, hey, is this Parkinson's? I got this tremor. Most tremors are not 
Parkinson's, but, you know, that is something that is very characteristic for that. Or it may be things like, hey, my wife says that I'm shuffling down the hallway and I'm or I'm tripping more and I'm not picking up my feet. Do you think that I might have this? So there's a there is some good testing for Parkinson's disease, but it it's one again that you sort of have to lean heavily on the presentation and I love to have my neurology colleagues help in the diagnosis of that because um, they're really good with um, watching somebody and all the different movements that they do, put them through sort of a test of that to sort of tease that out. So it is really complicated to do all this stuff and put it together, but very satisfying. And uh, again, if you're not hearing what you things that make sense, ask those questions to your own doctors. Uh, and healthcare providers because they can give you that information. This has been Southern Remedy, which is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at UMMC. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell and the podcast producer is Abram Nanny. Tune in to MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.